1: How do marine animals sense the world around them? Life underwater is obviously very different to life on land and it can be really difficult for us air-breathing humans to imagine what goes on down there beneath the waves. But understanding how animals find their way around the ocean, especially when they're tiny larvae, plays a vital role in our efforts to protect fish, lobsters and all sorts of other marine critters from the many problems the oceans face today. I'm Helen Scales, and in this Naked Scientist special, I meet sensory biologist Yella Artemer from Boston University to find out what we know about the ways marine animals build a picture of the world around them.
0: My whole career actually is based on this intrigue with what other animals can see in the world. And... I decided that probably the most interesting place was underwater because it is so unfamiliar to us. So if we want to understand and enrich our understanding of sensing and the information that is actually floating around in the environment, it pays off to go to animals that live underwater and ask them some questions. So really, literally, that is what I've done from the start of my graduate career in the Netherlands, and I'm still many years later doing the same thing. And it's by no means boring because the um, things we have learned are absolutely fascinating. So I joined a team of Australians in the Great Barrier Reef who were very much fish ecologists. They have until then pretty much considered larval fishes to be floating passive particles who could not possibly swim against ocean currents and therefore were at the mercy of ocean currents. I, however, came from a very different point of view. I look at little fishes and I look at their brain and I look at their sense development and I see highly sophisticated small versions of larger animals. And so I thought it cannot be. You cannot develop a big brain and all these senses for nothing and just float around willy-nilly in the ocean. So my intent was, uh, totally in agreement with the ecologists, of course, who were intrigued by this notion, to go and mine the uh, knowledge we had gathered from other animals to see if larval reef fishes actually can influence their trajectory in the wild, big ocean. The answer, in short, is yes. And we make new discoveries all the time. And... that means we have discovered, for instance, that they use their olfactory sense to discriminate between the odors of different reefs, even though the reefs are very close together. That means that they probably imprint on that at birth because at birth that's basically the only information they can gather. They are sitting there, often brooded uh, in, some, in some species, and so the local environment in which they hatch is the first experience they have with the world. And that knowledge can help them later on if they want to come back to the reef, because many of these reef fishes and also invertebrates are dispersing as larvae out in the open ocean and have to come back somewhere to a reef. So what better knowledge than where you were born? You know for sure that that's a reef and that it supported your species and so try to go back to your home reef. And if it doesn't work, go to another reef that is similar. We also have just discovered that they have a sun compass. So just like birds and insects, uh, they can use the sun for general orientation. Other people have worked on sound and have discovered that they orient towards sound. So there you have already three major senses, and we expect that they will have a magnetic sense as well. So here are our little floating particles who have real knowledge of the ocean and can influence their return to the reef and thereby the structure of the population as a whole, and that has conservation implications.
1: Well, yes. I mean, moving on to those those implications, presumably, if we start to see changes in those factors that they are the monitoring, presumably, if we have. Uh, different pollutants coming into the water that might influence their the smell? I guess we're just starting to understand what they're sensing and therefore the next step is understanding how we're changing that perhaps. Or, or maybe are there more positive benefits? Are there ways that we can use our understanding of their behaviour to help, to help recover um, reef fish populations perhaps?
0: All the fundamental knowledge we get about animals can go, always go both ways. It can go towards... Capturing more of them and wiping them out, it can go towards conservation because we know what we shouldn't be doing because we are hurting them in ways that we didn't know before. And one of the things I was asked to do when I first came to its Hole, literally, was uh, oil pollution. Way before the great BP spill There were smaller spills in the neighborhood and people become very fascinated. How could this oil potentially mislead the animals? We know it can kill them in high doses, but maybe at low doses, it already has deleterious effects. So we knew about the story, for instance, in lobsters, that fishermen were using kerosene-soaked bricks to catch lobsters. So clearly the kerosene serves as an attractant. But it sounds like, up front, that it probably is also bad for them. So we started investigating that. We literally mimicked that. We used kerosene soak bricks. We analyzed the different fractions of the kerosene and uh, measured lobster responses to it and found out, in fact, that there is an attractant in there, which is one of the fractions of the many compounds that are in, in any oil. And found that there is another fraction that is deleterious to them. So, yes, they would be attracted. They would manipulate and try to eat the brick, a little sliver of brick. But then they would not eat for another week because, obviously, they had become sick. So that was just as an indication that indeed it is possible that these um, petroleum hydrocarbons can serve all sorts of functions in the animal that we're totally unaware of. One function that people have been thinking about for quite a while is that they could mimic pheromones so that animals communicate by special chemicals, which in insects are often hydrocarbons, but maybe that's also the case in lobsters. Now, unfortunately, we have made no progress in that particular realm. But the principle still stands that there are attractants and that there are poisons in the same mixture, in this case, in hydrocarbons.
1: Are there any other aspects of the lobster ecology and the sensory um, world of a lobster that that has implications for their management, for trying to protect stocks, um, especially in this part of the world? where I know there's a a lot of lobster fishing goes on up and down the coast of of Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and and Maine. Are there other applications and things you're looking into?
0: Uh, yes, I think this research is most, mostly the population research related to the fish story that I told you about the reefs, that in lobsters we find very similar things, to our surprise actually. So uh, in Maine, it was just reported that they had the largest catch ever this last year. So the Maine fisheries for lobsters does extremely well. And the reason that's that The case is probably because the lobstermen are performing a form of aquaculture. They bait their traps. The lobsters go in and eat the food and walk out again because until they get to legal size, they can walk out of the traps. And then when they get to the right size, the legal size, they're caught. In the meantime, they have been able to reproduce because the legal size is set at a reasonable level. In southern New England, we have a problem, on the other hand, south of Cape Cod, because of shell disease and perhaps other things. It could also be water temperature. So that might stress the animals so that normal levels of pollutants, for instance, uh, become now so additionally stressful that the lobster population suffers. The response of managers was to propose to shut down the fisheries in southern New England entirely in order to protect the stock and let those that are there uh, reproduce and create a new healthy population, perhaps get used to pollution levels, adapt to changing circumstances, become more temperature tolerant, any of those things that can happen over longer periods of time. Of course, the lobstermen would be very much affected by that. The entire lobster industry would be. So if you imagine that the lobster population is not easily replenishing itself broadly, but that lobsters actually are only locally uh, reproducing, then you can change your management strategy. You can look in southern New England and say there are areas that are perfectly fine and other areas that seriously affected Long Island Sound, for instance. Also, Rhode Island at the moment is in a relatively bad shape compared to prior times. So that is where our research has come in, because what we discovered is that lobsters are different by their morphology. Lobstermen have always said that. They say, I know where this lobster comes from. We know this lobster is different from that lobster. But that is the kind of casual observation that would be nice to confirm with genetic and morphometric evidence. And that's what we've been doing. So our surprising discovery was that within Narragansett Bay and just outside Narragansett Bay, only 30 kilometers distance, we find two populations that are different. So we look carefully at the fine structure of how they're built, how long this leg is, how wide this leg is, the tail fan, the carapace, any, anything we can measure. And based on that, we compare these populations and we see they're different. Then we take a little piece of tissue and do genetics, and we find that genetically they're different. And finally, we ask females from one and the other population to see where they would like to spend more time with the side of the tank where a male from their own population or from the other population is. And it turns out that significantly, by a small margin, they prefer their own males. Now, these three things together could indicate that, in fact, we are dealing with a locally recruiting population because in order to get this kind of difference, they have to repeatedly go back to the same place and reproduce in the same place. That is hard to believe when you know how the lobster lives. Lobsters, like the reef fishes, disperse in the ocean. And so they can travel a long distance in the three weeks that they are at sea. So how come they can still maintain a local population at 30 kilometers when they can move 100 kilometers? In addition, once they settle, they are mobile adults, not like reef fishes who sit where they are, but lobsters have been documented with tagging studies to be able to travel over hundreds of miles and back. So therefore people are thinking it's impossible for lobsters to have small scale structure, and that's the uh, investigation that we are in the middle of right now.
1: Wonderful. And how are you going about answering that question? What sort of studies are you doing to start to unpick this big question mark of? how the lobsters don't end up just all being mixed up in one big population, given the larval duration and the, and the m- mobility of adults. What, what sort of studies are you doing?
0: You're asking the right questions. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are two, d- two directions of answer here. One is we want to first establish that what I just told you uh, is really significant. Just to find an exciting finding, despite the fact that it has both genetic, morphometric and behavioral evidence, uh, I still don't want to walk on that thin ice because it is the implications are so significant that I haven't even published it yet. Uh, so the proposal that is right now in the hopper is to go to a place where we saw this structure, Narragansett Bay, And now sample five sites in Narragansett Bay and five sites outside Narragansett Bay and sample it three times per year for two years. So now from that study, two years from now, hopefully if it gets funded, we would know how persistent and how different and at what scale these populations, subpopulations are different. So that's the first step. In the meantime, we're working, because obviously that is really my interest, is how do they do it? So there are a number of ideas about this. Once again, it comes to larval imprinting, that these animals may have an olfactory notion of where they were born and may have a preference for ocean water that smells like home. In the beginning of their larval stages, they cannot swim very much, just like the larval fishes. But in their second part of their larval stage, actually in the f- it was called the fourth larval stage, they look like little lobsters and can swim incredibly well, faster than humans, even Olympic champions. And so they can swim for days on end without feeding and so they can cover huge distances. If on top of that, it turns out that they have navigational capabilities, let's say with a magnetic or a sun compass, they could steer in an innate direction. So if they're born automatically with the sense that they should be swimming northwest, which is the the way to go to the continent, right, if you're at sea, uh, then that would already help them settle on the coast. But if they are traveling along the coast, they still would have to make differentiations between, let's say, the water of Buzzards Bay and Narragansett Bay, two neighboring bays, and if they recognize that, oh, this is Narragansett water, to actually stay with the Narragansett water. And in a tidal ocean, they actually move back and forth. So it may well be that the tidal ocean, if they're hatched in a particular place, is actually not transporting them hundreds of kilometers. The olfactory capabilities is another thing. We have started that, and we know that they have various preferences, for instance, for, uh, for larval lobsters themselves, so they can settle with each other. But we don't know yet if they prefer their local stock versus other stocks.
1: And then I guess finally, we, we've we've touched on that this is going to have implications for management and, and for conservation. But how will that actually work? I mean, I guess we can see a picture of if we understand more about how local populations are, are seeding themselves, how they're working, that we're talking about management units, I guess. We can't necessarily consider the lobsters as being this one interconnected population. So maybe it's, is it good news if they were sort of local populations? Because then a local fishery could really look after its own Piece of territory, its own piece of sea, and see benefits from what they do, rather than having to have all this sort of interconnection with other areas. Maybe that's—is that a good thing?
0: I think you hit right on it. uh, It's—it is probably very good to have local management, because let's go back to the reef because in the reefs you have these very distinct entities that are called reefs reef fishes can only live on reefs and in between there is an ocean desert where they can only live as as plankton in their early larval life so if you have a reef that you set aside as a management sanctuary and you are assuming that these animals will automatically seed all the nearby reefs, then you can expose the other reefs to fisheries and say, it's okay because we have one reef that supplies all the larvae for everybody else. And this was one notion that people started with. If it now turns out that most of these larvae are going back to their home reef and not go to the other reefs except occasionally with a storm, then the recovery of the plundered reefs will take much, much longer. I'm not saying it will not happen, but it doesn't happen next year. It might happen in 10 or 30 years. So that has enormous management implications. If we now jump to the lobster territory, which is not built of separate reefs, but it is a continuous coast, it seems less likely that lobsters can do this same population structure. However, if we actually manage to establish that they do... Regardless how they do it, we can use the same management implications for the reef as we can do for the lobsters.
1: That was Yela artema from Boston University talking to me, Helen Scales, about the sensory world of the oceans and how he's trying to unpick the mystery of how and why tiny lobster larvae find their way home when they've got a great big ocean to choose from. You can find out more about how marine animals hear, see, touch and smell their way around their ocean homes in the Naked Oceans podcast. We've made a whole episode about sensing the underwater world, where we delve into the vision of deep sea denizens and find out how scientists are using underwater robots to eavesdrop on the songs of whales, even through the middle of a raging storm. And there's plenty of other fishy goings on at the Naked Oceans web pages, including the whole first series. So drop by and have a listen. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more